I would define risk as taking that first step and kind of going against the grain. What it reminds me of is when my little girl is, is poolside and, and I'm telling her to jump into the water and it feels risky to her, but I've never let her down. I had this fear of failure. Maybe you don't have faith in, in God's ability to, to work through you. God has something that's going to come from it, so he wouldn't put it before you if you didn't know you could handle it. Really leave everything, lose everything, which is a fear of anybody. I had my own business and I just felt called to the ministry, so I just closed my doors one day. When you lose everything, you really find yourself, as Jesus would, would tell us. It's almost just feeling like welcomed home. I'm so glad that I heard the call. I'm so glad that I listened, and I'm so glad that I took the risk. Okay, here we go. We're wrapping up a series uh, that we've been doing together for the last seven weeks called Deep and Wide. And uh, we've been talking about this idea that you and I want to be a church that is both deep, in other words, we are going after maturity, we're all about growing up and becoming people who look an awful lot like Jesus Christ, and then wide, we want to be a place where it's really, really hard to live anywhere in proximity to us and not have heard this story of Jesus because we're so aggressively telling it deep and wide. So here's what we're going to do, we're going to do the deep and wide pop quiz today. You're, what a great moment. All right, here we go. So in your seat back, right in front of you, there is a card that looks just like this. says deep and wide on the one side. You go to the other side. says deep and wide again at the top. And then it's got little slots. Here's what we want to do. I want to go through the eight values. Seven we've already done. The one we're going to do today. The eight values that guide our church, that direct us toward being deep and wide. And as we go through each value real quickly, I want you to write in the appropriate column, do you think that that value is a deep a maturity type of value, or do you think that value is a wide value? It's all about outreach and getting out into the community. Where would you place that value? So grab a pencil, you're gonna kind of fill that in. At the end, I'm gonna take a survey. I wanna see how many you placed on the deep side and how many did you place on the wide side? Okay, so here's, here's the conversations that you and I've had. Uh, the first one's kind of a freebie. Uh, the first conversation we had was all about maturity. And we just simply said, we're, gonna, we're not going to be satisfied until we grow up and, and look like Jesus Christ in our lives. So I'll let you take a wild guess which side that one probably lands on. Uh, Number two, the second week we talked about serving, and we said, look, God has uniquely gifted you and formed you so that you can serve in the body, that you can do ministry in the body, and your life pushing up against other people's lives and being used by God has the chance to grow them up, and then they, as they serve, also have the chance to grow others up. So serving, is that a deep value or is that a wide value? Scripture, we talked about this idea that everything we, our church does is under the authority of the Bible. Even if there's passages that we go, man, if I were God, I don't think I would have said that or written it that way. We don't care because we're living as a church and then more importantly as individuals. You and I have decided to live under scriptural authority and just to say, look, if God said it, then that's how I'm going to behave. That's what I'm going to measure my life by. Is that a mature issue and value? Is that an outreach value? Is that deep or wide? And then uh, we talked about evangelism. 
I'll let you take a wild guess which side that belongs on. Uh, we talked about worship. And worship is this idea of putting God in his right place. It's the reason when you sing it's worship is because when you say the words, you're declaring God's rightful place. But maybe more important than that is the moments in which you and I live our lives obediently, when it's really, really hard to do the right thing and we choose to do the right thing despite how hard it is. That is worship because you've placed God in his right place in your life. Is that a maturity value? Is that an outreach value? Is that deep or is that wide? And then we talked about this idea of community, that you and I are better together, that there are things that you've learned from God that, that I can take advantage of because you have the ability to speak into my life and they rub off of you and there's moments when I'm weak and you're going to be strong and vice versa. There's things that God's taught me that I can help you with. Is that a maturity? Is that a deep value? Or is that a wide? Is that an outreach value? And then we talked about last week, future generations. That you and I would be willing to sacrifice our own comfort and our own preferences. We'd say, look, it may not be exactly my music. It may not be exactly how I would have formed the service. But I'm willing to do that so that the younger generation can be in the room and be part of what God is doing here. Is that a maturity value? Is that an outreach value? And then finally today, you and I are going to talk about the topic of risk, which is simply to say this, there are moments in which God invites you and me to trust him with things that seem on the surface to be completely beyond our abilities, completely risky in our lives. And God says, I'm asking you in this moment to have enough faith to trust me to take you somewhere that you're absolutely fearful to go. Is that a maturity conversation? Is that an outreach conversation? Where would you put it? All right, so here's what we're going to do. We're going to find out how you scored this. How many scored it half and half? You scored four for outreach and four for deep. Okay. How many of you scored it five and three? Five for maturity, three for outreach. How many of you scored it six and two? How many of you scored it seven and one? How many of you did not raise your hand because you're afraid you did it wrong? Okay, all right. All right, so here's my suggestion. I believe it should be scored seven and one. That almost every one of the conversations that we've had together has maturity at its very essence and at its very core as you, we talk about it. Here's why I think this is important, guys, is that I think sometimes people get a little bit confused and uh, they see our billboards out on the freeway and they see our friend days that we do and they go, whoa, 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 you're, you're just uh, one of those outreach churches. You're just a, a seeker-sensitive type church. But the reality is, guys, do you read that you and I really only do four evangelism moments a year. We do two friend days, we do Christmas, and we do Easter. The other 48 weeks a year, you and I are diving into maturity and how to grow. And although that may feel a little lopsided, it's not because, you ready, maturity is harder. Maturity takes more effort and more constant application to land. But you and I do this 48 weeks out of every year. Matter of fact, uh, let me uh, read you a few of the series that we've gone through recently. We did White Flag 
Do you realize White Flag is a series that talks about living my life in absolute, total surrender to the will of God? Uh, we did Religious IQ, which really is a college-level survey of comparative religions. Uh, we did Aliens, and Aliens was all about understanding that I don't own my life, that I simply steward my life, manage my life, and every bit of my time, every bit of my talent, every bit of my treasure ultimately belongs to God. It's a maturity issue. Uh, we did uh, things that I hate about the Bible, and you realize what we did is we tackled five of the most controversial, high-risk conversations that people argue with and don't like about it. We did Christian apologetics together. Uh, we did a series a while back called Red, and if you were here for that, uh, you know that it, the whole series was about the teachings of Jesus Christ, because in some of our Bibles, his words appear in red. And so we just did a, the most important pivotal teachings of Jesus Christ together. Uh, we did offensive parenting. And in that moment, we said, look, we don't care what pop culture says. We don't care what our neighbors are doing. We're willing to stand against the tide and simply parent our children biblically. You get that every one of those conversations is a maturity conversation. The difference is that you and I simply wrap it a little bit differently. Okay. How many of you got gum on your way in? Okay. Uh, if you didn't get gum, that's because you're a loser. I mean, that's because we didn't see you uh, walking in. So here's my question. When did gum get sexy? When did that happen? I mean, take five. And it's, and it's in this slick black box with kind of fluorescent colors on it. And then look at, look at the flavor. If you got the blue box, cobalt. If you got the green, the green box, rain. What does rain taste like? What? If you look really, really close on the box, if you look right there on the five, who makes this gum? Wrigley's. Wrigley's. And what you all of a sudden realize is, this is the very same product that Wrigley's has been making for what, 90 years? They just put it in a different wrapper so that it would be more appealing, so that it would look better. But the reality is, guys, on the inside, guess what? Guess what? Wrigley's gum. You and I do this all the time with church. At the end of the day, you and I are still all about digging into the Word of God, learning how we're supposed to live our lives, growing up in Jesus. We just put a really cool wrapper on it. And so we put flags on stage and banners and we buy billboards and, and I'm doing crazy little object lessons up. We do that so that it helps the message be simpler and clearer and more attractive. But at the end of the day, guys, 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 it's gum. And at the end of the day, it's still the word of God and it's still about you and me growing up. And so here's the deal, look, look, look. It doesn't matter if every other church or every other Christian you know out there doesn't understand what you and I are doing here and they go, you know, you're just all seeker. It's, oh, it's okay. As long as you and I know that's not true. And as long as you and I know what we're doing in this place. And that we're all about being deep and wide. All right, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to tackle the last one of our values today. Uh, we're going to talk about this topic of risk. So grab your Bibles, go with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 
If you're not real familiar this morning, if you go to the front of your Bible and then start working to the right, you're going to find this book of 1 Samuel. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 17. So this day starts like any other day. The sun comes up and everyone in the house begins to stir. The men grab their briefcases and head off to the fields to work. Uh, the women begin to saddle the camels so they can drop the kids off at school from the caravan. You'll get that one after a while. And in the middle of what seemed normal, in a moment that for all intents and purposes was average, the Philistines show up. And they are bigger, and they are stronger, and there is way, 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 way more of them than there are of us. Hey guys, you get, you get that moments of risk in our lives, moments of danger in our lives, always come at the most inconvenient times. We just bought the kids braces. I haven't met this month's quota yet. And suddenly, and if we're not careful, in that moment, our natural tendency is to sue for terms. To say, whoa, 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 look, look. What does it take to make the risk go away? What does it take to make this uncomfortable moment kind of fade? How, how do I skirt around this? And if you were the children of Israel, you would have been saying something like, you know, I mean, what, what are we talking? Are we talking higher taxes? Because I, I, I can do that. Are, are, are we talking that we need to become a province of Philistia? What, what, what does it take to make the problem go away? What does it take to avoid the risk? And guys, every one of us in this room is prone to that same direction. And here's why. Because intuitively, you and I seek out safety and comfort. But here's what you need to know. Very often, safety and comfort are enemies of the plan of God. That if you live your life simply saying, look, I, I need whatever is most convenient. I, I need whatever is the least challenging. I, I, need, I need, look, I just need everything to be on the upside. That's, that's how I want my life to go. And if that's how you measure your life, chances are you will miss God and what he's doing. Because, because, you ready for this? Because God's greatest moments always happen when his children are willing to step into risk, when they're willing to say, God, look, I don't know how this is going to turn out. I have no idea how this works. I simply know you asked me to do this terribly risky, horrifyingly scary thing, 
and I'm choosing in this moment to be uncomfortable, to be unsafe in this moment, and to step into risk with you. Because, because, right? God's greatest moments always happen on the other side of risk. Think about this. The stories that you and I tell our children at night, the Bible stories, are filled with risk. There's stories that are absolutely terrifying, ready? If God doesn't show up. Think about this, think about this. It's not Daniel and the basket of kittens. It's not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the scented candle. And the stories that you and I tell our children about, you ready? About how God works are filled with life and death. And if God isn't there and if God doesn't do it, then disaster shows. Because, because, because. God's greatest moments are always on the other side of his people being willing to risk. You know, it's interesting because this very room that you sit in, this very church that we go to, was born out of risk. I was youth pastoring in Southern California, and I'd gotten to a point in my life where my career, if you want to call that in ministry, had reached a point where the churches that you always dream about were the ones that were calling and saying, hey, Lynn, would you come? Would you be our youth pastor? And literally, in the midst of interviews, of going to those churches that you always dream of going to and interviewing for jobs, God began to nudge my heart and say, Lynn, I want you to go plant a church in Chandler, Arizona. Now, guys, this is a bad plan. It's really, really dumb to do this because here's what you've got to know. Church planting is for guys who can't get a real job in ministry. See, this, this is what would happen. You'd have your executive minister and he'd come to you and say, look, you've had your resume out there for like a year. Nobody's going to hire you. Maybe you should start your own church. And I wrestled with, I mean, I said, look, I, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, God, look, what does it take to make this go away? What do I have to do? What, 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 what do I have to give you so that I, you know, we don't do this? And I knew, I knew that God was inviting me to the other side of risk because here's the deal. I had to leave a job that paid really well and I had to go out and raise support like a missionary. And I went to every friend and every family member I had. I twisted their arms. I blackmailed them. I cried. I did everything I could do. And at the end of the day, I was able to raise, ready for this, $24,000 a year in support. And guys, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not so old that that's good pay with no benefits. So now we're praying, God, please don't let anybody in our family get sick. I'm leaving California when the bottom has dropped out of the California economy to move to Arizona in the middle of the boom. We got our offer back on our house. I looked at the realtor. I said, Do you, that's crazy. That's $70,000 less than my house was worth six months ago. And she said, you're right. And if you don't take it, I won't be your realtor anymore. 
because that's what houses are selling for in California right now. Brent and Sonia Richardson, who came with us, had to pay people to take their house. We knew as we began to do this that, that if this thing failed, if this thing didn't work, we were without jobs. And, and the, the, the top line in our resume was going to read, church planting flop, which is not a great way to get hired. I ended up having to move at 35 years old with a son. I had to move back into my mom's house. Cornerstone's first office was my mom's sewing room. And, and I'll have people ask me all the time and go, hey, Lynn, when, when you started this thing, did you know how it was going to turn out? And I say, are you crazy? This was the dumbest thing I ever did. It was simply that God invited me to come risk. Because God's greatest moments happen on the other side of risk. So let me ask you a question. When's the last time God invited you to risk? When's the last time you said, hey, we're going to go do something crazy together. We're going to go do something terrifying. And it doesn't add up. It just, it just looks, ins- I know, no, no, no. Come do this with me. And in that moment, when God invited you to risk, how did you respond? What did you do with the invitation? See, this is, this is that moment when you have a friend and they're in sin and you know, somebody ought to say something to them. Somebody ought to go and look, hey, that you can't go that way. You're going to blow up your life. Don't do it. But you also know, chances are, they're going to be madder than a wet hen at you if you do it. Chances are, you'll lose the friendship. Did you go? See, this is that moment in your marriage when it stinks to be married to your spouse. I mean, it is just, you can hardly stand to sit in the same room with them. And now there's somebody at work and they're flirting with you and you go, hey, there's a, there's a soft place to land. There, there is a big exit sign. And God said, dig back in and make your marriage work. What did you do? It's that moment in your life when the conversation turned a little bit spiritual and you knew, you knew you should open your mouth and, and you knew you should say something about Jesus to your friend or to your neighbor and, 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 you, and you froze. You just went, look, I, wow. I mean, it would, if I open my mouth right now, this could change everything about our relationship. They're, they're never going to see me quite the same. I'm going to be a little bit hypocritical because I haven't been a perfect... Cri- what did you do the last time that God invited you to risk? He's tending the sheep. It's it's a job that's usually reserved for children and for the women in that culture. But he's the youngest brother of eight, and so the lot has fallen to him. And so he sits there staring at a bunch of sheep grazing. 
Little does he know that on this day, God will invite him into great risk and that he will do the seemingly impossible. He sees somebody coming in the distance and as they get a little closer, he realizes it's one of his older brothers. And as they get there, he says, hey, uh, dad is looking for you. I'll watch the sheep, you head back. And so sure enough, he uh, heads toward the Rocking Jay Ranch. His father, Jesse, is on the porch. And his dad says, look, it, it's been a while. Uh, your brothers have been off in battle and no one has sent any word. So here's the deal. Take a little bit of bread, take a little bit of cheese. It's a great excuse to visit. Go see what's going on. See if your brothers are okay. And then the second you know, you turn around, you come home. Last thing I need is to lose another son. And so now as he rides that small donkey toward the battle, he couldn't be more thrilled. I mean, the thought of swords clashing and shields banging and watching men be men and battles won. He is filled with anticipation every step closer he gets. And as he nears the field, it's silence. No fighting. No battle. And confused, he comes around the corner to see the tents of the men. And sure enough, they're sitting there polishing swords. And he thinks to himself, if I come too late, has the battle already been won? And then he sees the problem. Striding out into the middle of that field, a giant of a man who once he reaches the middle, stands and says, I defy the armies of Israel, and I defy the puny little God they say they serve. And if there be a man amongst you, send him out to fight me. Mano y mano, winner take all. If your man wins, we will be your slaves. And if I win, then you will be our slaves. But send me a man if you dare. And he looks around. He looks around to see grown men staring at their shoes. Nobody wanting to make eye contact with the man next to him. Finally, someone says, hey, I cooked dinner last night. I'm thinking giant patrols on your list today. Saul, Saul is in his tent. He hasn't even bothered to come out because, because for 40 days, this Philistine, this giant, has mocked the armies of God. And every head has turned to him to see what he would do next. And he can't stand the stairs. And so today he stays inside. And this young man, not even realizing that he was probably saying it out loud and not to anybody in particular, because his soul can't stand by and see what's happening, says, somebody, somebody has got to do something. We can't possibly stand here, see that. 
and do nothing. Doing nothing would be wrong. Grab your Bibles. It's verse 26. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes his disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? How is it possible, David asks, that this man is saying what he's saying, doing what he's doing, and we are doing nothing? Because there come moments in our life where doing nothing is riskier than risking. There's this great uh, video clip out of the movie Braveheart. I don't know if you knew this or not, but everything you need to know about the Bible is somewhere in the movie Braveheart. It's just, it just is. Lots of Jesus and Braveheart. And there's this moment uh, when the Scots have gone out to fight only to find themselves standing across a battlefield and the English have showed up and they are more and they are better armed. And in that moment, the Scots go, okay, this is, this is a good day to default and uh, we're just going to head on home. And William Wallace begins to have a conversation and the crux of the conversation is simply this. Doing nothing is more dangerous than losing your lives. Here it is. There are moments. There are moments when not to risk is riskier than to risk. Years back, I, uh, I took our elders kind of on a field trip. I, I wanted them to go visit churches that had seen moments that were terrifying and scaring and had stepped into the risk. They'd made the great decision in that moment and how God was blessing them and using them. And so we did this field trip and went around. And as a part of it, I said, hey guys, let's go to a church. Let's go visit a church that in the moment that they needed to make hard decisions, when they needed to do the thing that was really scary, didn't do it. And so there we sat that Sunday in an auditorium just about this same size. This church, years before, had gotten to a moment when they knew they needed to change. They knew they needed to adapt. They needed to get rid of the choir robes. They needed to let the demon drums up on the stage. They needed to change how they delivered their messages. Not change the message, just change their delivery. And in that moment, they were filled with fear. And they said, look, look, we, here's the deal. If we do this, we're going to tick off the older people. And they're the ones that pay the bills. And we can't do it. And in that moment, they decided to do nothing. And on the Sunday that we visited, sitting in an auditorium this size, there were less than 300 adults, most of which were over 70. And I wondered... I wondered how many of them would have given anything to go back to that moment and decide to risk this time. See, I, I think you and I are in a similar moment as a church. Uh, we've gotten to where our 9 o'clock service in the morning, our 10.30 service in the morning for the last four months has overflowed. We've had to take our best adult maturity room and turn it into an overflow room. We're trying to do maturity in a tent. 
We make people, when they're trying to come here and figure out who Jesus is, stay in a line of cars only to get onto a gravel parking lot. And then if that wasn't enough, we make them walk across sharp shards to get to our buildings. Ladies, am I telling the truth? Amen. Pastor, preach it. By the time you get to the buildings, we make you stand in line in overcrowded hallways to wait for the service that's ahead of you to let out because those parents have to go pick up their kids. When they finally do, then you get to drop off your kids in the room. You head over to here only to stand in line to wait to get into the auditorium. And guys, we've made it really, 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 really hard to figure out Jesus. We have violated every value that we have as a church. We're allowing brick and mortar to dictate our values. And the answer, guys, is pretty simple. Somewhere we're going to have to step into some risk. We're going to have to sacrifice. We're going to have to build some buildings. We're going to have to have more purple chairs for people to come sit in. Because, because, because there are times when doing nothing is riskier than risk. David's brother overhears him, begins to rebuke him. How dare you, you wet behind the ears teenager. You stand there talking like you would actually do something about this. There are grown men frozen in fear and you act like it's nothing. Go back home. Somebody overhears the conversation and immediately runs to Saul and says, hey, there's somebody stupid enough to go fight that giant. To which Saul says, well, bring him to me. And as Saul stands there waiting, up comes walking David, and his heart sinks. He's a musician. And he plays the harp. Despite that, he's willing. He's willing to let David go battle. Why? Why? Why would you send a boy to do a man's job? Why would you take a teen who's just now starting to grow his first whiskers and send him against a giant? Because here's what Saul figures. Whoever goes down there is going to lose. So what does it matter who we send? The outcome is inevitable. So trying to make the best of a bad situation, Saul begins to put his armor on David, and David looks as ridiculous. He looks like a little boy trying on his dad's suit. And finally, David says, look, I, I can't. It's more of a hindrance than it is a help. And then he says to Saul, you're thinking about this wrong. Grab your Bibles again. It's verse 34. Here's what he says. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came 
and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it down and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defiled the armies of the living God. Here's what David's saying in the moment. Don't miss it. He's saying, look, 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 Saul. I've already killed a lion and I've already killed a bear. And look, look, look. I shouldn't have been able to. There's nothing about me. I don't have that ability the only reason I was able to do those things is because God was with me. And Saul, you're looking at the wrong thing. You're trying to figure out if I'm capable and I'm not. But the God I trust is. And here's what David is saying in that moment. You ready? God's ability is not dependent on your and my capacity. See, God's ability to make that situation work out, God's ability to land this thing on the right side has nothing to do with how good you are. Matter of fact, God actually gets more glory and more delight by taking the weak things of this world and doing the outrageous. That's why when God invites you into risk, if you try to add it up on your fingers, it will never add up. Because the greatest things of God always happen when the people of God trust in Him and not in their own capacity. And guys, I'm just going to say to you, this is good news. This is good news. Because some of you have heard the voice of God. And what God has asked you to do is absolutely terrifying. And your and my first response is to say, God, I, there's just, there's no way. There's no way I can do that. It will turn out bad. God is never dependent on your and my capacity. Daniel had never taken a firefighting lesson. He had never been a lion tamer. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not have fire retardant suits in the closet. You will not be prepared for what God invites you to do. I understand, I understand why you started dating him. I get it. Because in that moment, you looked and you said, I know this isn't the guy that God has for me. I know, I know. But based on my experience, based on the fact that in the last nine months, nobody else has asked me out. If I pass, there are no guarantees. I get why in that moment when you were sitting there with your neighbor, with your coworker, and the conversation turned spiritual and something nudged your heart and said, tell him, tell him, tell him, tell him you love Jesus. Tell him the story about how he's changed your life. I get why you froze. 
Because in that moment, you looked at your own capacities and you said, look, 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 I don't even think I know the Bible well enough. Chances are they'll ask me questions that I don't know answers to and I'll fumble this thing. I get why you don't tithe. It's not because you don't love God and it's not because you don't believe that it's, I get it. You look at the ledger at the end of the month and you just go, Lynn, Lynn, there's no, it's, it's not possible. And I'm just gonna tell you, God never takes stock of your ability when he invites you to join him in risk. That he is not limited by our capacities. And every one of us in this room has a Goliath. Every one of us in this room has something that God has asked us to do that terrifies our hearts. And you will never slay that Goliath by going and trying to prepare to be good enough. You will only slay Goliath when you say, the battle is not dependent on me. It's dependent on God. So let me ask you a question. When's the last time, when's the last time you risked with God? That you stepped into a moment that you said, there is no way, if this is dependent on my ability, if this is about my capacity, if this is, this is, if this is about my training, it will not work. And if God doesn't show up in a big way, I'm going to fall flat on my face. When's the last time you took a risk with God that if he didn't come through, you would fail? So David steps out to face, to face the champion of the world. And, and he's got a belt to prove it. He's over nine feet tall. He makes Shaquille O'Neal look like a midget. The end of his spear, 15 pounds. It weighs as much as a bowling ball, only sharp. There's a full-grown man doing everything he can to carry Goliath's shield in front of him. And out comes David with a sling. A child's toy. And as David gets midway through the field, he stops at a brook to pick up five smooth stones and as he reaches, his hands shake and his knees knock. Because guys, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is when you're terrified out of your mind and deciding to do what's right. And when Goliath finally realizes they've sent a boy to fight him, he calls out and he says, what is this? You've sent out a dog to fight with me? And understand the culture. Dogs aren't pets back in this day. Dogs are scavengers. 
and they hadn't learned about hygiene and sanitation. And so you would take your trash, you would take your garbage and your uneaten scraps of food and you would just throw them out in the yard in front of your house. And then the dogs would come and scavenge. And the only positive thing about a dog is that he would eat the rotten stuff. He'd eat the stuff that was decaying and was going to have maggots. Dogs are about a half a step up from a rat. And Goliath says, why have you sent a dog to fight me? To which David looks at Goliath and says, apparently, you needed to come out and face me with all of your armor and all of your equipment. And I have simply come to face you with the Lord. And at this, Goliath is outraged and he pushes his armor bearer to the side and begins to charge toward David. David runs at Goliath, not because he's suddenly unafraid, but because he needs to close the gap. And then he slings the stone. And guys, there is no doubt it was not the skill of David that directed that stone. It was the hand of God that took that stone to the one place that it could hit and cause damage. The small gap in Goliath's forehead between his forehead and his helmet. Bam, the giant goes down. And watch what happens next. It's verse 51. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. And when the Philistines saw their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Because they're thinking, boy, if a pre-puberty, if a young man can do that, what would a full-grown Israelite do to us? Watch this. And then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance. Isn't it amazing? that suddenly the people of God are filled with courage. I wonder, I wonder how many times the church of Jesus Christ has failed to move because there couldn't be found even one David in the room. One David who'd say, look, I'm going to fight for my marriage. One David who'd have the courage to say, look, I don't care if I risk my friendship. I'm going to, I'm going to say what I got to say to you. One David who would speak boldly about his faith in Jesus Christ. I wonder how many times you and I have sat in fear because there was not a David in the room. Then the men of Israel and of Judah surged forward. And a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Shararaim road to Gath and to Ekron. Because, because, because. Great things happen on the other side of risk. I'm wondering, I'm wondering what your Goliath is today. I'm wondering what that thing is that you'd say, God, look, is there any way to talk our way around this? Is there any way for me not to be obedient to you in that part of my life yet? Is there, is there any way we could avoid that? Can we talk terms, God? 
And what the moment really calls for is a David who would say, look, I get, I, I, can't, I can't do this. It's bigger than me, it's stronger than me, but I'm willing to step into risk with God because I believe with all of my hearts that God's greatest moments happen on the other side of risk. Is there a David in the house? Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we just, we simply come to you in this moment. We want to just say out loud, we, we are, we are so drawn to comfort. We're so drawn to safety that so often we avoid your invitation. We avoid the opportunities to step into risk and do something remarkable for the kingdom. And God, I'm just asking that all through this room that you would raise up David's that some of us would go home and make phone calls and say, look, I can't date you anymore. I'm waiting for God's best. That some of us would go and have lunch with our spouse and say, look, I'm, I'm recommitted to this relationship. I'm re-engaging. I'm not going to take the easy way out. I'm going to fight for this thing. That some of us need to go back to our schedules that just look insane and say, look, I don't care. I'm going to carve out time. I'm going to carve out time to be in Bible study. I'm going to carve out time to be in service. I'm going to risk. Some of us need to go home and open our checkbooks and say it doesn't add up. And I'm going to step into risk. God, we need some Davids today. In Jesus' precious name, amen.